Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm liking my new jams right now. So good. And I'm excited to talk to you about this week's show because we're going to talk to Gabe Toth. He's the author of a new book by Brewer's Publication called Fermentation Kitchen. Years of brewing experience, years of writing experience, as well as some distilling experience throw right in there. But Gabe has wrote a book that has to do with all the other things that we ferment. And we do a lot of that in our kitchen. So stick around for the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now hey homebrewing diy listeners i want to talk to you about a piece of essential equipment in your homebrewery that i think is one of the most important key pieces of that home brewery, and that's your glass hydrometer. Now, I only use one brand of glass hydrometer, and that's Brewing America. Why? Because it's made in America. It's the highest quality hand-blown glass that you can get for a glass hydrometer, and it's perfectly calibrated. This is not a $3 cheapo that you're going to get off of AliExpress or something like that. This is a quality hydrometer made here in America and you can get it at brewingamerica.com and if you use the coupon code 15% off you're going to get 15% off. I mean pretty pretty standard and easy and it also let them know that Homebrewing DIY sent you so use that 15% off coupon code. You can also head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer use our link there. That also lets them know that you came there from us and they've just been a great supporter of the show not only through being on the show in the past but an ongoing sponsor of the show 
that keeps this podcast coming to you every week. So support them even for just that reason. That said, head on over to brewingamerica.com and check out some of the high quality glass hydrometers that you can get there. I'd like to welcome Gabe Toth. Gabe has kind of got a, a unique background in that he's done a little bit of everything from brewing to writing to distilling. He's kind of done it all. He's worked for such breweries as Santa Fe Brewing and has done distilling for companies like I, I, you're working at Family Jones now, right? That's correct. Awesome. I manage the Family Jones production distillery up in Loveland. Awesome. And that's Loveland, Colorado. So for those of you who don't yes. know what Loveland is and I would like to welcome you to Homebrewing DIY, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. Awesome. The reason I had you on the show is you are about to release a brand new book on Brewer's Publications called The Fermentation Kitchen. And for those of you who've listened to the show for a long time, you understand my obsession with fermenting not just beer and mainly beer, but I would say I also have a huge personal journey that I've taken where I ferment all kinds of other things. I think once you get the the bug, you don't just stop at beer, right? And I've made a lot of the different items that you're going to talk about in this book, but I'd love to maybe talk about how you got into not only brewing and fermenting from the beginning, but then how it turned into other things is that full kind of kitchen. Yeah, sounds great. I started home brewing in 2006. I was straight out of college. I was in Southern Colorado. I went to school in Pueblo, Colorado. And even, you know, 15 years ago in, in Colorado, the, the craft beer scene was, it, it was vibrant. And I moved to the mountains of Northern New Mexico, little town of a thousand called Angel Fire, straight out of school my first job, newspaper job. And I looked around and I said, great, where's the local beer? And there was one brewery between Santa Fe, New Mexico and well up into the, well up into Colorado, Salida, Colorado, I think was the next closest brewery. So I, I started learning to homebrew. I had a taste for the good stuff and I've just wanted to have access to it. I wanted to learn how to make it. Did you start off doing like uh, all grain? Did you go the full way up front or did you start with like extract? I started with extract. I, it was a couple years before or a year and a half before I really got into all grain brewing. I started off with extract and as I was brewing extract, I said, Hey, you know what else I love It's pickles should learn how to make pickles. And over the, over the next year and a half, I was doing both kind of at the same time and then had some friends who were also really excited about beer. And we, we went in on a nice, a nice all grain kit and started brewing it, started brewing at home, all grain, 10 gallons. And things just went haywire from there. It, it turned into cheese making and then sausage making and charcuterie had a friend who worked at the local high-end restaurant and they would offer cooking classes. And there was one on sausage making and I told him I'd love to, to swing by sometime and, and take that class. He said, just, just buy these two books and if you have any questions, you got this. Don't worry about it. So I started making sausage. I bought an old Czechoslovakian 
hand grinder. It, it must have been made at, at, in the early, in the mid eighties at the latest. So that home sausage making turned into meat curing, turned into, oh, we need a curing chamber. We need a meat fridge. And it's just snowballed from there. It's, it's gotten out of hand from there. It, it got, a, it probably got out of hand before that moment. It just, it just kept snowballing. Yeah. I feel like once you get the bug and it can start from, for me, I'm very similar. I started with homebrewing of beer. Obviously you, you usually, once you start that fermentation, you bust off into things like, Hey, I'll make some cider. That's a pretty easy transition. And then all of a sudden you start to realize all the fermented foods around you. And you talk about in your book right off the bat, the, the bat, you talk about the different methods, right? Not only just from the different types of wellness trends that are out there, but you also discuss like there's differences between like yeast molds and bacterias and they ferment in different ways. I'd love to hear a bit about what those differences are. The yeast, yeast is pretty straightforward. We, we all know how yeast works, takes up sugars of various sorts, a, a pretty narrow range of sorts, but takes up sugar and produces CO2 and, and ethanol. But bacteria is really, uh, bacteria is the workhorse in the fermented food world, especially I would say lactic acid bacteria similarly takes up available sugars and converts it into lactic acid. This is, I mentioned at CBC last week, this is probably your, your most relied on fermentation path in in the fermented foods world it's cheese it's sausages like summer sausage or salami it's uh it's part of a lot of beer fermentations is fermented vegetables pickles of of various kinds and then there's there's acetic acid fermentation another bacteria acetobacter primarily and it's actually taking up ethanol and digesting ethanol it's taking this fairly hostile and strongly antimicrobial substance, ethanol, and turning it into an even stronger and even more hostile substance, acetic acid. You know, that's your, that's your vinegar and it's part of your kombucha fermentation. There's, it's, a, it's a weird world of these different metabolic avenues that that exists that you can take advantage of depending on what you want to make. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned are different types of molds as well. So not just the bacterias, but like, for example, one that always sticks out to me is like a, a koji, for example, like for like you would see in a sake fermentation. A lot of people use them to break down meats, for example, is a fermentation method. How do those work a little differently than like you would see with a standard lactobacillus type of fermentation? Yeah, koji, I think, is absolutely fascinating. We weren't able to really dive into koji. We got into some theory, I think, in the book, but we were trying to go for low-hanging fruit for very accessible, approachable methods for the book. But koji, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I know that this isn't being video recorded, but I have a couple of barley or beer-based misos here on my desk. Koji is particularly interesting to me because it's relying on this mold, this Aspergillus orzae, which you're culturing and you're growing up on a, on a very basic medium, like some rice generally. 
and you're adding that into a, it depends for, for miso, you're adding it into a very salty secondary medium that will prevent the koji from actually growing and thriving and, uh, multiplying, but it's already created this whole galaxy of enzymes. Koji starts growing and it just, you know, it, it's just squirting out all these different enzymes as it grows and producing all this stuff. And there are amylases, there are proteases. When you're making miso, you're taking advantage of the proteases, the protein degrading enzymes that will break down your, whatever your secondary media is. It might be beans, it might be grain. I, I have some, some barley miso here and, and a black bean stout miso that I've just been hanging out on my desk for the last year or so, waiting for them to, waiting for the right moment. Yeah. But then when you, but then when you take miso and you apply it to sake or shochu, you're actively growing up, you're propagating it. You're using parallel fermentation where you're taking advantage of the amylase production of the miso of the, sorry, of the koji. You have a small fermentation of starter koji growing on rice that you add to another batch of cooked rice and then you add yeast and the, the koji is converting starches in the rice into sugars and the yeast is taking those sugars up and turning them into ethanol and then you take that and add it to a bigger batch of rice and you're stepping up this this fermentation this parallel fermentation of both koji and yeast to create a really interesting, a really unique product that, that there isn't really a, a parallel for in, in the beverage world. It's yeah, it's Koji. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's super fascinating to me. It's also one of my favorite. Whenever I talk to my fermented food friends, which I do have a group of friends that are fermented foodies and I'm always just, I'm overly fascinated by Koji's because of that enzyme enzyme enzymatic power that it has it's i've seen people use them to to convert a steak and almost tenderize it in a way it's like breaking it down then you wash off the koji and then you cook a steak and you're like whoa this is the most tender thing i've ever seen and and that is just speaks to the funky uniqueness of that particular substance or or really it's a mold that just is somewhere that you've never seen anywhere else it's really a unique thing out there when it comes to all these things right yeah, my uh, my wife told me once I made a couple of pork chops, I marinated them with koji, maybe a little soy sauce for some salt and Korean chili paste, and let the plenty of koji and let it really just work and work on the steak for a, a day or two, and then put them on the grill. And she said they were they were pork chops, uh, they were the best steaks, pork or beef or of any kind that that she had ever had. It was it was remarkable what. What a good miso marinade will do to a piece of meat. I had heard of that, but I never applied it until this summer. And it was just, it was stunning. It, it's really amazing. One of the things that you talk about through it, the book though, is you go into the different types of foods that are out there. Starting with, I, I think that when we get into the easiest kind of fermentations and food out there, the one we probably encounter the most, you talk about obviously the baking of bread. And I'd, I'd love to hear maybe some of, the journeys you've had through baking, and maybe if you have a couple little tips or tricks in there for maybe getting that really perfectly beautiful airy bread, 
I'd love to hear them. Yeah, bread is tough. Bread takes practice. It's at the beginning of the book, but I mention it. Don't be discouraged by failures in bread. Bread is difficult and it takes practice. For me, baguettes, and I have a, a recipe in the book for baguette, and baguettes were, were my white whale. I would, I, I, I like to go out on a camping trip every fall. We don't. Uh, I used to hunt. We don't have the space for an entire animal at home right now in, in freezer storage. But I still like to go out in the fall and take a few days and get out in the mountains and sleep in the truck and uh, just get back out in the mountains for a bit. And every year for 10 years, 15 years probably, I would pack up the truck and one of my go-tos is, is just a good sandwich. And I would bake these baguettes at home and they would be just a little too dense and they were fine and I would eat them, but they were, they were just good enough. And the last couple of years I started experimenting with the thickness of my dough, the water to flour ratio and going for a thinner dough, going for less, less folding and less kneading and more water, more allowing the, more allowing the natural rise of the dough to create gluten rather than working the dough intensively. And I still remember that first moment just crystal clear when I pulled, I, I, I could feel the first time I, I moved my, my hydration rate up to this is I I've, I found it. I found the secret. It was it was a transcendent moment. It was <laughs> one of those small victories in life where you just go, "Oh my God, that was it!" And I make that bread every couple of weeks now. Every opportunity I have, I'm going to make a batch next week. And smoke some, I think it's 70% or maybe 75%. I could feel the dough was different. And then when I opened the oven and took the, took my baguette pan out and picked up the first loaf and just hefted it, I could feel the difference. It was just, it, it was like a balloon. It was light as air. And I just went, oh my God, this is it smoke some meats at work and make some sandwiches for the staff I'm able to make those baguettes it's just so it's it's a very deeply personal thing to me i love a great sandwich and the right bread is absolutely crucial to do a great sandwich and i would agree that bread is i i thought brewing beer was hard you it takes a few batches <laughs> to get it down brewing beer is still cooking right you still have to follow a process and it, but it's a it is a one of those beverages that can be very repeatable I feel like bread is one of those things that you're really cooking by feel and there's something to like, Hey, this is bread. My grandmother made right like that. There's a, a bit of that. Like you could even call it witchcraft to it, but in the end it, it is, there is a science to it as well. And it's a little more subtle than beer is. And it's things like for me, I, I think we all did the sourdough trend over the pandemic and, and I made me some starter and I've done a bunch of sourdoughs and my first loaves were really thick bricks that at least they rose a little bit and now 
over time in practice, you end up now when I make a loaf of sourdough, I have an oven spring that blows people's mind. It's like photo perfect. And you just, it's amazing how you can do that with the practice. And a lot of it is feel. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's knowing when, and you talked about the kneading and get in that gluten production. It's the, Hey, this dough's at the right spot and I need to stop now and I need to, you know, let it have that bulk fermentation and it, and it, and that fermentation process does build that lattice work in there. And it's amazing, at least for me personally, how I've gone down that journey and how you write about it in the book is also very similar in that, that there's a, there's a certain, yeah, the bread is, it is something where out the get go, it's not easy. Yeah. And for me, it, it was a process of, I mean, I, Jeez, I probably have eight or 10 red books. For me, I, I always approach food and cooking, or I, I always used to approach when I was learning, when I was, I don't want to say that I'm not actively learning about food anymore, but when I had much less sort of baseline knowledge, baseline understanding, I would approach food from a very sort of academic standpoint and want to just learn as much as I could about it. And I probably have eight or 10 bread books. And it, it was a matter of going through and, and looking at different methods and trying different techniques and different methods and trying to understand what worked and why it worked and what was going to work for my own preferences and my own schedule. I'm not a professional baker. I don't have time to wake up at three in the morning and start kneading or start dividing or whatever the batch that was mixed at midnight or 8 p.m. And what are the things that I can adjust? What are the levers that I can pull to, to tweak the process to make it work around my schedule, around my, my preferences, around what I, and, and still get the bread that I want to get. But it was, it was also a very hands-on learning process where you go, okay, I think this bread feels like it's like properly proofed, but I don't really know until I bake it. And I see if it's, it's, I see whether it rises and it's a lot of trial and error. You go, it, it rose well two months ago when it was 76 degrees in the kitchen, but now it's 70 degrees in the kitchen and it's been the same amount of time. And I think it feels good, but I don't really know because I don't have that much practice. And it does, it does take a lot of trial and error. It takes a lot of okay bread. <laughs> it is, it's, I, I think when you get a little practice, it, it becomes tougher to make really bad bread that you just don't want to eat. But it might be bread that you do something different with. You maybe make toast with it, or it, it might not be a sandwich loaf, but you do something else with it. You make breadcrumbs or something. It's it's rarely a, a total loss, but it definitely takes it's very it's a lot of trial and error to to really nail it down. People spend their entire lives just mastering a couple different types of bread that they just love. Yeah. I want to move on to specifically your hot sauce area and because, and, and I have a, I have an actual reason for this. 
it is like <laughs> hot sauce season right now. It is we're in the height of yeah. it. Like, it is like all everybody's peppers are coming on, tomatoes are hitting, and really we're just at the height of just in general, like the kitchen fermented stuff is like Oh my it, god, my tomatillos are just going wild. Yeah. We're in the we're in the thick of it right now. And for me, I started a few years ago making my own little fermented hot sauces. Take a bunch of Fresno chilies and throw some habaneros in there. Uh, 2% salt solution or more like a 3% in salt and water solution and just let them rip and then turn them into just this amazing hot sauce that's kind of raw hot sauce. And I started sharing it with friends and I've now got an entire group of people that are like super into making hot sauce every year because it's so good. And actually, my favorite part of it is when I strain it through a sieve at the end, I end up with, I, I put into a dehydrator, a chili, I, I dry out all the chili powder when it's all done and all the pulp. And it makes the most amazing acidic chili powder that I can't get anywhere else because it's all my old hot wow. sauce pulp. And so that's my what little What do you do with there. that? I put it on thing. It becomes a spice. It's part of my kitchen, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> like when you're, you want to put chili powder on something, it's this chili powder and it has this, it has this fermented tang to it that is so good. But that, that, I, I, might, I might use that for the next book, <laughs> but <laughs> hey, I'll give you credit. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I also like to use everything, right? And, and, and in the end, and I share it with people and they're all like, whoa, where did you get this? And I'm like, you can't get anywhere else, but it is, it is a cool thing. Cool part for me is that I have a season for that. I have a season when I make my hot sauces and and right now we're in that phase. If if you were to say right now you're at the height of your season, what is it you're what are you fermenting right now? And in what are you what yeah, what are you fermenting right now? My cucumbers are tapering off right now. I want to give you a caveat here. I, I narrowed my garden scope this year a little bit. I'm wrapping in my master's degree i have i have a lot else on my plate at the moment so the garden was a, a little less planned a little more haphazard and a little narrower this year but i've made a lot of pickles a lot of i, I like th- this is the first year that i've done sandwich slices big long sort of oblong uh, slices and i just brought some of those to work to to keep around for lunch I like making a uh, a ghost pepper pickle every year. That's one of those things that I can make at home that, that's nowhere else. It's not at the store. It's not, it's not at the grocery store. It's not at the farmer's market. It's not at Whole Foods. I have to make that if I want it, and I love it. What else am I making right now? I mentioned my tomatillos. I actually have uh, a pot of brine cooling on the stove. I was talking about figuring out time frames when, when you can squeeze these things in around around your work schedule. I boiled up a batch of brine last night and I have a big bowl of tomatillos that I harvested yesterday that I'll just split in half and throw in with uh, some white onion. I'll see what uh, what peppers are, are popping in the garden. I have some, I know I have some Thai chilies. I have some cayennes. I have a couple of my, my very first, what are they called? Uh, scorpion peppers, Trinidad scorpion, a lot of dill. Going into the pickles, that stuff that's coming out of the garden. My dill actually went to seed last year, and now it's sprouting up just all over the place. It, it's not in the garden. It, it's in the garden, but it's everywhere else now. Yeah, you know, I, I like a lot of dill in my pickles. I, that's actually one of my favorite things but, about dill, though, is like that it just grows everywhere. It just, just goes it, crazy. <laughs> yeah, you just pick it as you need it, and it's it's there. 
you just walk outside and oh, there's some dill like in the flowers. Okay. Let's just grab a handful and throw it in the pickles. That's about all I'm, I'm fermenting at the moment, I think. I, I do want to get out to the farmer's market the next couple of weekends and see what kind of peppers are are around. I'd like to, to get a, a couple hot sauces going sooner than later. It's it's that time of year. I don't want to I don't want to miss the window. I didn't have time to to really grow them and care for them this year, but I don't want to miss the window. In your book, you have I'm looking at I, I'm actually looking at it right now, and it is there are so many recipes in this book uh, that you it, it's awesome it's awesome. And so if you're listening to this uh, podcast right now, obviously pick up the book and and give it a read. But it, it is it, it's. There, there is a lot here. I, I would say you've probably got fifty or sixty recipes here, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of recipes, but they're all different. To to me, it's not a cookbook or a recipe book, but a a book of jumping off points. You're not you and I and whoever else out there. We're not fermenting food at home because we want to follow. We want Gabe's recipe for giardinera. We want to make something that's uniquely ours that we can grow in the garden or that we have a, a specific taste for. I tried to tackle as many sort of categories and methods as possible to give people a lot of starting points, a lot of ideas to look at and say, that's what I have in mind, but I want to do this. The relish sounds great, but what if we what if we tried it with all this zucchini and some oregano or whatever it is, whatever the light bulb is that goes off above your head. Hopefully there's a recipe in here that sort of, that embodies that method that gives you a place to start and say, that's what I want to do. And I can adapt that to this vision that I have. Because that's all, that's why we're all making fermented foods because we have this, this desire to create what we want to eat, what we want to taste. Yeah. I think that's the best way of putting it. And, and it is something where you cover everything here. You've got from charcuterie to kombucha to vinegars, meat, dairy, all of it. It's all here. It's all the different types of fermentation. And to me, fermented food is something every single human culture we all have some sort of fermented food. It, it's just part of what we do. And I, I think that it, it you, you cover it all. That was the goal was to, to give a lot of options. One of the things that I thought about a lot when I was working on this, or, and even before I was working on this, when I was brainstorming the, just the broad idea for this was thinking back to 2006, 2007, 8, when I was learning all these things. And at the time, you, if you wanted to make bread, you had to buy a book about bread. Yep. If you wanted to make charcuterie, you had to buy a book about charcuterie. Or if you want to make cheese, you buy a book about cheese. And if you're me, that means you buy, you know, two books about cheese making and all three of the charcuterie books that were available on the, on the market at the time and five books about bread. And this book isn't necessarily going to make you an expert in any one of those things. If you really want to master 
any of those things, you need to you need to buy those expert texts. And they're actually recommendations in the back of the book. There's a bibliography where we where we identify some of those books that are really great resources. But this is the book that I really wish I had in, in 2006, 2007. That's it's detailed enough or kind of, I'm not an academic. I, I manage a distillery. I, I throw grain bags in the morning and then I do TTV paperwork in the afternoon. I, I, I'm a beer nerd and I'm a whiskey nerd and a fermentation nerd. And I, I want to know not just what's happening, but why it's happening. How is it happening? And how can I... How can I make adjustments to that? How can I tweak those processes? And my goal was to put something together with enough detail to, to satisfy that level of curiosity and enough breadth to give people a lot of, a lot of places to, to maybe dip their toes into the, into the waters of, of the fermented foods world. You know, there, there are a ton of options to, to find the right fit for you to go, maybe I want to make cheese or maybe I want to make bread or maybe I thought I wanted to make cheese, but now I think kombucha is super weird and interesting and I want to give that a try. But there's a lot out there and hopefully this will, this will satisfy enough people's curiosity to at least take that first step and get involved. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that the, the process of fermentation, when you're learning to brew or even really distill, the first step you have to learn is how to ferment. I think that's what it's the cool thing about extract home brewing is it teaches you to ferment really well. You don't have to worry about the whole like mashing part. And if you ferment extract beer really well, then it makes the all grain process so much more easier because you, you've already fi fi factored out the part you have the least control over and that's the fermentation. Yeah, we all think we have a lot of control. And then and then to me, it, it really that that same passion just transfers right over into the fermented food because it is a lot of the same things. It's hey, we're gonna get this thing that we're gonna get this thing in the right type of solution to basically get the kind of chemical reactions that we want from whatever type of microbe that we're gonna use to to make our fermentation happen. But then you still just got to wait and see what comes out the other end. And it is what it is when it's done. And, and there's something cool about that. And I don't know, <laughs> that, that's just me. But uh, there is something cool about it. I'd like to actually thank you for coming on the podcast. I Let's do a couple of things. I'll make sure that I get a link here in the show notes to the book. What This is uh, now September 16th when we're doing this recording. When is your actual launch date? As I understand it, the 27th, it'll go out from Amazon. The Brewers Association actually had a handful of copies. They had a box or two at CBC. I don't think pre-orders have gone out yet, but they had a, they had some copies available. It, it was supposed to be last weekend, but there is a supply chain issue. Yeah, oh, shocker. <laughs> a paper. There, yeah. there is a paper supply chain snag, and I believe it will be out. September 27th is is what I've been told. Awesome. If you're listening to the show and this will come out actually before September 27th, so that'll work out. Head on head over and check out uh, Brewer's publication and uh, you could pre-order the book today. Also, I will put a link to the Amazon 
I'll, I'll do a, an Amazon link to the book as well. And there you could pre-order it as well. And they'll ship it right out to you. I've done pre-orders from Brewers Publications many times. And you get that book that day, even sometimes a day early. So a nice thing if you do the pre-order. Uh, I happen to be in Colorado, so I think I just get mine faster. But whatever. <laughs> and, and I can't make any promises, but it, it seems like the supply chain snag has cleared up if they had some copies at the craft brewers conference i'm not going to say that you're going to get them before september 27th but it seems like the supply chain is flowing smoothly and it's possible it's possible we'll say it's possible but you should pre-order it possible. <laughs> <laughs> but you should totally pre-order it and yeah, so I'll, I'll put a link there in the show notes. And Gabe, thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. I was excited to talk to you because this is a subject that I love so dear and dear my heart. Well, first, I'd like to thank Gabe for coming on the show. Great guests like him really just make this podcast and making this podcast amazing. Like I said, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and look in the show notes and we will have a quick little nice link there that would get you to be able to check out his book and pre-order it. So get, get that done if you're interested in fermenting in your kitchen. I'd also like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you. This show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy. Give it any amount. It takes only a dollar to go ad-free on this show. Dollar a month. Cheaper than a cup of coffee. It's so easy to do and very, very, very inexpensive and supports the show. And I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Really, really heart goes out to you. You can also head over to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And there you can give it any amount as well because that's one-time support and coffee.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. Another way to support the show is write us a review. Head over to podchaser.com or head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Your reviews really do matter. We read them. I'll give you an example. I just recently in the last couple of months got, and I've had a few reviews that have said that I had recently had issues with my audio being leveled all over the place. And so that actually drove me to try a new audio editor that's the last couple of shows that you've listened to are in my new audio editor and kind of liking it so it's it's a it's a slick little machine we're trying here but it does help me with some of the levels because one of the problems you have when you do audio is that one machine sounds like a different machine so what it sounds like in my headphones may not be what it sounds like in your car and so I'm working with my new audio editor that I think gives me a much more consistent volume level as far as levels go with me, my guest, and and everything. Let's let's wrap this puppy up, and I'll see you next week on Homebrewing DIY.